Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Divided Films, the podcast where audiences and critics do not agree on movies and we pick sides. Uh, with me, as always, is my co-host, Keith. Hello. And um, joining us today back on the podcast is my amazing fiance, Eric Toro. And joining us for the first time is his cousin, Gene. Oh, sorry, Gene and... Enriquez. 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 I knew it, and for some reason I doubted myself at the last second. Gene no, Enriquez. Happy to be here. Glad to be back. <laughs> uh, good to have you guys. Um, obviously, Eric on. Eric's always like with me anyway when I'm recording. Uh, and then Gene, to have you on uh, while you're in town. It's good to have you on. Um, so today, we're talking about the 2005 drama, Memoirs of a Geisha directed by Rob Marshall. Uh, this movie falls into the category of having a negative score with critics and a positive score with audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. Only 35% of critics approve, 83% of audiences approve. So like nearly a 50% difference there. And the critics consensus, less nuanced than its source material, Memoirs of a Geisha may be a lavish production, but it still carries the simplistic air of a soap opera. So there you have it. Uh, this is one falling with audiences won over, but critics not so much. Um, and one of like our bigger differences. Uh, for me, this is like actually my first time seeing Memoirs of a Geisha. I did not catch it when it first came out uh, roughly 15, 16 years ago. Um, but... I know some of you guys have actually seen this one before, so we'll start with um, Gene uh, and Eric. Uh, what is your experience with this movie, and are you surprised that audiences enjoy it more than the critics? Sure, I can start. I am the older between the two of us, so I might have firmer recollection of he knows more. 2005. The wiser one. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was excited when this movie was announced. Uh, I knew a little bit about the, the novel that had been really popular in America at the time, but um, you know I always grew up uh, really you know, interested in Japanese culture. Uh, had a lot of Japanese friends growing up in in, in East Asia where I grew up. Uh, you know, anime, movies, uh, Akira Kurosawa films like Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, and Ron. And then uh, you know the Last Samurai came out a couple years before that, which I really enjoyed, which I'm pretty sure was also a divided film. Um, I think so. Yeah, but when this came out, I was really, really excited uh, hearing about it. But uh, I do remember it was an interesting year. Uh, there were a lot of uh, big movies, so it might not have gotten the same, uh, you know, the same audience uh, rapport as those other big movies. But um, yeah, I think it was a good timepiece, and um, I think. What I really enjoyed about it most was the storytelling. I don't know about you, Eric. I think that's what most people liked. I did like the storytelling. I and you know, like cinematography is clearly beautiful as well. Um, for this movie, I remember. I think I remember watching it with you, Jane, because I you would yeah. introduce me to all these movies as a kid. I was like a young teenager at that time, and this movie really excited me because I was actually super obsessed with Asian culture. I was super Asian proud at that time. I had AIM, Zenga, and I had like Asian Pinoy, Asian Islander screen names. So um, even my bedroom had like a Japanese symbol of love and it had like dragons and the Buddha and it had like everything Asian in my bedroom, a giant fortune cookie pillow. So that's the thing, like this, this movie excited me. Um, it's something that I really love looking at because I love the beauty and culture of a country and how they portray that as well as showing the artistry. Like I, geishas are like beautiful artists. They're able to really communicate their craft well and I think this is something that was definitely a good introduction for um, Americans to see but obviously we're going to find out there's more to it than that so yeah I totally agree I think the visuals it was you know the cinematography was beautiful it was a guy this is the same director that did um, was it Moulin Rouge or Chicago one of those Chicago Chicago, Chicago. Right? so you know really colorful um you know, there were some things about it that, you know, that stuck out for me to this day. 
um, continue to bother me. I haven't seen the movie since uh, it came out in 2005 until I watched it again recently just to, to catch up on, on, uh, on the story. But um, I think the biggest distraction of all was the casting, which I think uh, historically has been noted as the, the biggest problem a lot of people had with this movie because uh, it was mostly, at least the leads were mostly Chinese and not Japanese. They're often like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. They just basically <laughs> took popular Asian actors at a time. Yeah. Ken Watanabe is the only Japanese actor, I believe. Of, of the main Koji, cast. Uh, of the main yeah. cast, yes. Yeah, Koji Yokushida is the uh, Mr. Nobu. He's also, he was a big, big Japanese actor as well. Yeah, so it seemed like the a lot of the male characters were cast as from uh, Japanese actors, but then a lot of the female characters were portrayed by Chinese actresses, which is interesting. Yeah, um, what's your what's your history with this movie, Keith? Uh, this is my first time seeing it. Uh, yeah, this movie came out like fifteen years ago, and you know, not a lot of fifteen-year-olds were rushing to the theaters at the time. Uh, and I wasn't really that interested in movies that were nominated for the Oscars that weren't Lord of the Rings. Uh, this movie has a lot, like, they really kind of came out, like, all the heavy hitters came out for this. Like, John Williams actually wanted to do the score for this. The cinematography is beautiful. The art direction is beautiful. It's been nom It was nominated for seven Oscars and one for three. And yet, I can't help but feel... It was a little bored. I was a little bored by it. Sure, that that makes sense. I I don't think there was. I think there was a. I feel like I'm looking at something beautiful, but I there's not. There wasn't a lot of depth to it, right? Or at least there wasn't a lot of emotional. That I really couldn't connect to it, and uh, there was a lot of critic uh, consensus uh, or little critic quotes that I read that I'm like, oh, that makes sense for me. Yeah. But that's kind of where I'm at for it. it. was still like it's not a it's not a full out bad movie, but it just Rob Marshall kind of aside from Chicago, he's kind of made a lot of boring movies after that for me. Yeah, uh, I, I get that. It's kind of for a lot of critics a very surface level film. Yes, it's very beautiful, but I think the critics wish there was maybe more uh, investment in the character development and. Uh, maybe more of, I don't know, maybe more like an in-depth story, like the writing in particular. I mean, it's based on a novel, but uh, they like the word that comes out or the term that comes out is like soap opera, they're saying this. So maybe a very uh, fluffy kind of story, which that's their take. I don't know if I really get that myself. I was, I can see how people can be a little bored with this movie. But I was I was enjoying it. This is also my like I said my first time watching it, and I've always been interested in Japanese culture. I've never done like a deep dive into a film that really explored that. Except maybe you know I've always been a fan of like Hayao Miyazaki movies, which explores a lot of themes with that culture. Great movies. But watching this, uh, yeah, I guess I am more focused a lot on things like production value, like the sets are beautiful, the locations are beautiful, the cinematography, things like that, because those are the things that stand out the most. Um, and then story-wise, I don't know, I kind of went along with it. I, I kind of like the idea that she, this main character is uh, becoming better and better at being a geisha and like quickly rising up the ranks. There's a lot of elements about the story that I liked. but So I wouldn't totally say this is like a soap opera type story. There's elements of that where it gets a bit overdramatic, but I wouldn't say that it's total fluff with nothing at all to think about. No, I, I agree. I appreciate with how, you know, they, it's a very linear story. It starts with Chio as a little girl um, and how, you know, she's taken away from her parents and then taken to a geisha house and then how she develops from there. And, and it really just follows a linear uh, path until the end, uh, right? So, um, it, I think it gave enough, at least to, to follow Chio slash Sayuri along the way, but you're right. There's so many characters, so many important characters, like someone like Mr. Nobu, who has like a big impact on all of their lives, but he just comes in as, you know, the really strict disciplinarian, uh, guy mm -hmm. that's a war veteran, um, and has, you know, all sorts of issues, but they don't, they don't really deep dive into those characters who really play 
big roles or for the chairman for that matter you know that her love her her like her love is based on the fact that he gave her a handkerchief when she was a kid and you know it never really develops him right other than just someone that she remembers very well you know what i mean it's weird how she just clearly just fell in love as a little girl with him and she kept that handkerchief so creepy a little bit like keeping it in her little like container some people in the audience comments and i kind of noticed it too but it's it's kind of grooming in a way ish maybe it like it, you get a little like irksome like like oh it's an older man going up to this seven-year-old girl yeah it's going, it's uh, much he's i mean like he's much much older obviously and when you find out at the end that he basically like remembered who she was and was responsible for making her into a geisha like that's a nice twist and all but i i that's one thing i don't like about the story is that they do kind of end up together at the end i would have maybe have preferred if okay she's driven by this childhood crush on an older man who was nice to her but maybe towards the end she like learns to have other values and find more strength within herself that she can be driven by other things besides this very blind and immature love for a much older man exactly i feel like that's a soap opera part of it it's just to kind of extreme how they ha really focus on that and they like you said we really love seeing the develop of her a geisha is such a distinct artistry that you really have to gain a, a lot of your skills like uh, you know as a, as a kid and that's where they start as younger being the i think the maiku being their little like um apprentices like apprentices and servants you know kind of doing grunt work until they're old enough to really take on the you know bigger responsibilities of being a geisha i mean i totally get that there's way more to being a geisha than this movie's portraying but i don't think this movie really focuses as much on stereotypes like misleading stereotypes of geishas being sex workers which is a false stereotype I don't think this movie plays into that at all, really. They kind of touch on it a little bit. I get a sense that it's a very small portion, a very small element of being a geisha. But I, I feel like this movie, if anything, led me down the road of, oh, geishas aren't sex workers. Geishas actually have a lot of skills, and they're, they're very sophisticated. They aren't what a lot of Americans at the time thought, which was maybe just like high-end prostitutes. Yeah, I don't. I don't think in the original like mandate because there were laws passed that um, that regulated how geishas were, uh, how they operated in in you know feudal like feudal as in 14th century Japanese society. Uh, they were not meant to be sex workers. They were meant to be entertainers. They were they were like the hosts, the supermodels slash you know singers and entertainers of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so if you consider you know we don't consider them. Uh, you know, sex workers, right? So they're 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 not right. So, but I think that's what the big misconception was, and I think that's where we we run into a lot of uh, not understanding what's happening in the movie, just because here in the West, and I'll say, you know, as a Westerner, although I have um, Asian origins, you know, didn't fully or don't fully understand, um, you know, the geisha culture. I think the the end, I think it, it makes sense to a degree because, you know, she is trying so hard to get out of being a geisha and you know one i guess she never finds her sister in the end but you know live happily ever after which um and i think to your point about um about the age difference that's not extremely uncommon in japanese cu culture either for there to mm -hmm. be such a huge age gap between um between or asian culture for that matter have uh, an age gap between spouses um, yeah, 18 yeah. years is normal. I, I remember hearing about 12 years, 18 years age gaps. And... Okay. So I guess maybe uh, that is something looking through a more modern lens uh, you know, into, yeah, into a different culture in the past. Agony and beauty for us live side by side. Your feet will suffer. Your fingers will bleed. Even sitting and sleeping will be painful. Not call yourself a true geisha until you can stop a man in his tracks with a single look. I, another thing I like is that this is basically also a movie about the end of the geisha era, 
right? Because you get into the World War II portion, and just when this character is like the top of her field and her craft of being a geisha, it all comes crashing down. And she even says, like, all that training and work was almost for nothing because then she has to spend years working, like, you know, out in the country uh, trying to do whatever she can to survive. So I find that interesting, too. Any any subject matter about the end of an era is always an interesting story to tell. Absolutely. Um, but that's the thing. I believe that um, the fact that the whole concept of gauges is misconstrued because of the war. Like, I think that um, a lot of the prostitutes, because there were prostitutes there, but they called themselves geisha girls, I believe. And I think that's what kind of, like, titled these geishas to be these prostitutes, and that's not what they are. They hinted at that. They hinted at the fact that maybe the term geisha after the war became corrupted, and uh, some of these people maybe were playing into the misconceptions that Westerners had. I mean, you had that colonel character, that American colonel, who immediately assumes that he's going to be able to have sex with one of these geishas. And that is the that again, he represents someone who has no idea what a geisha is. Yeah, I like how they transition though. You see how when they transition from like the war, like it's really strange. The war just kind of like all of a sudden happens, although Japan had been expanding across Asia during the time period of the movie. But when the war hits the mainland, there's this abrupt change and she goes off into the country for a little while. But I like how they did that and then she comes back and Kyoto is a different whole different city, right? Mm -hmm. I think she even Sayuri in the narration says something like, well, anyone now wearing makeup in a kimono is a geisha. Exactly. And it shows the start of the end. Sorry, Keith. No, wasn't Pumpkin? Didn't Pumpkin? She ended up becoming an escort, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Very so, like, it, it's not, it's not, yeah, yeah. Uh, she's like, I couldn't make it. I'm not quite as good as you, so I have to do it my own way. Um, so it's like, I, I, I really didn't know that much about geishas. I think I just knew the imagery, and I knew I I knew they weren't sex workers. I wasn't getting that. I took it as like high end artists slash ego boosters. They're mm. like they they are definitely boosting the egos of these men around them. Uh, right, they're in a very talented. Way. Their clients were usually middle aged men, right, with money. Yeah, basically. influencers in society. So remember, it was like Mr. Nobu who had the factory at first, and then by the post war era. It was, you know, the colonel who worked for the, you know, the American military governor who could influence uh, business or, you know, the future of that part of Japan. I think there are different types of escorts, right? There's a sexual escorts, then there's a companion, like, host escorts Mm -hmm. that are just, you know, come to parties and they're there to to be the companion. Girlfriend experience. Companionship. (laughs) No, that's still a a thing today, actually. You know, they, uh, there there are... um, there are like hotels in Japan where you just can hire someone to hug you for several hours, and that's as much as you get. It's very, they're like it's a very different, very different culture. When because, not to speak too much about cultures, but they're very focused and can be very emotionally detached when it comes to, you know, the workplace. And when they go home, it's it's or when they don't have a home to go to, um, strong emotions. So it's I think that's what why geishas kind of developed too. You know, you mentioned earlier uh, about how the World War II element of the story hits suddenly about, like, I don't know, with maybe 30 or 40 minutes left in the film. But, like, so the timeline of the story, she's a little girl who's who's taken away from her home in 1929, I believe. That's what I read. And then, you know, she's growing up in, like, the 30s. And so I think when it jumps from her being a young girl to, like, you know, um, a young woman... I think that's probably like a span of what, like seven years or so. So then by then you're in the mid, mid thirties, mid to late thirties. Yeah. And from, yeah, what I know from history, Japan, you're right, had been expanding since the early thirties. Or the twenties. They started with Korea in the twenties right. and then China in the thirties. Right. And you, you can make, maybe make the argument that World War II in the Pacific theater had started by then. And you even have a line when Ken Watanabe is talking about him and the, you know, how Nobu saved his life while they were fighting in Manchuria. And see, that's where it gets kind of tricky for me because I know that like Manchuria was just um, a time when like the Japanese army was committing atrocities in in that part of China. So uh, it makes me like think they gloss over 
these like darker parts of that time period. And I know that's not the focus of the story, but maybe just don't even mention it because that is like kind of opening a small window into this whole other uh, part of what was going on at the time that like, you know, you bring it up and it, it, it warrants a little curiosity. Yeah, you're absolutely right, JJ. When, uh, when I first saw the film it was one of the first things I thought about because it was an all Chinese cast. Um, I don't know if you remember or if you guys might have read that I think the movie was even banned in China for a while because, yeah, you know, Zhang Ziyi, she's, she's a Beijing actress. Um, the Rape of Nanking was 1936. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the Chinese population, or at least the Chinese government, you know, in many ways found, you know, Zhang Ziyi and Li Gong, Gong Li, um, you know, they were kind of betraying their own people um, for from their perspective. So the movie didn't release in, I don't know if it ever did release in China. Which is funny because I would think, not funny, but I, maybe ironic then is the better way to say it because I would think the, the from what I read, the choice to cast those actresses was based on their star power, but their star power as Chinese stars, right? I don't think American audiences were as familiar with them as, say, like, you know, they had star power in China. And I think this was mid-2000s is when Hollywood really started to focus on their worldwide box office, which China contributes significantly to. So to make that decision which ultimately leads to the film not airing in that market probably was like a huge backfire. And like they, they were counting on this movie maybe being a huge hit in China. And it turned out to just be a, a very like um, sore subject. That's the thing. Um, I think they, they did choose actors based on, you know, their stardom. And the thing with Western culture over here in America, we really view all Asians to be similar. Like, we think that we're all the same ethnicity or whatnot, but that's the thing. Um, you, they can't, no one can tell, but a lot of, I guess, for us, we can tell, um, especially how these actors, you know, how, even how they act. Like, I remember we talk about how Japanese culture, things are, like, kind of more rigid in performance. Yeah. Is that what it is? So they're, they had more fluidity, I guess, especially during the fan dancing. Like, there's the differences. Did. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I guess was one of my, again, the characters being Chinese really... I guess from the first time I saw it, still it still impacts me today. And you know, we were talking about that the rigidity of you know, if you watch kabuki dancers or any other Japanese art, it's very deliberate and like choppy, whereas the Chinese dancing is very, you know, fluid and you know flowy, and uh, it it really bothered me um, even to this day. But I think um, what it really, I guess what really is, um, I think the character development was good to a degree the chinese actresses i think they were pretty good they're they did a good job portraying the story but i think you know from my humble opinion they they were portraying geishas from their perspective what a chinese woman in her mid-30s early 30s which is probably what they were at the time um how they interpreted a geisha from being so i i would imagine that if there were reviews out there from japanese uh, from the Japanese audience that they probably couldn't suspend dis- the disbelief either, you mm-hmm. know, saying that, you know, these are Chinese interpretations of what Japanese culture looked like. Um, so that was always a bit problematic for me. Uh, the tidbits that I found about the, the whole controversy, I, uh, uh, according to one of the producers, Lucy Fisher, the producers did hold an open day audition for Japanese actresses to come out, but no one did turn out to audition. I, I, I like and that's according to her like I don't know what that means. like she holds like an open sign like come in yeah open <laughs> casting in. call like you know tell all the agents tell all the you know throughout the industry and I guess the response was really not a response I mean, at pumpkin all pumpkin was Japanese I forget her name she the, the lady that played pumpkin was Japanese but um again you, you said star power that's really what it was crouching target hidden dragon and all the you know that joy luck club that that stream of movies that came out in michelle yo was a bond she was a bond girl like people knew who she was That's and true. ken watanabe's coming right off of uh of uh the last samurai and he would later he would appear later in that year in batman begins he did yeah um yeah you know michelle yo i really like that actress and you know, she hasn't really seemed to have aged much at all in the last 15 years, having seen her recently in movies like Crazy Rich Asians. and um, Agents don't age. 
Another another movie we saw we actually talked about um, last year um, was it Last Christmas, right? Uh, we, she was in that, and she looks exactly the same as she did back in two thousand five. She probably was maybe the most obvious actor who was not Japanese, just because I feel like they didn't really make her like at least with the other actors they have more of the hairstyles that fit in the darker hair i feel like with her she had like lighter hair and just something about her they just she kind of stood out throughout the whole movie because she does not the way about her and the way like she she wears herself and everything was way different than all the other female characters in the movie so i don't know what the choice was there but that kind of stood out to me like hmm like she kind of doesn't really go by how everyone else is keeping themselves I, and that's why I think what's like stopping this movie from being really great. And that's one of the things to me, because the more I read like the backstory and like the everything outside of this movie, uh, like Steven Spielberg was going to like he produced this movie or executive produced this like you see Amblin Productions in the opening credits. And he was going to make this movie after Saving Private Ryan, and he wanted to do it with an all Jap. He was going to do it in Japan with an all Japanese cast, uh, and like they were going. It was it was going to be subtitled. I was actually too. thinking so, that, like, I probably would have really taken this movie a lot more seriously if it was spoken in Japanese, which probably would not have gone over as well with American audiences. But that would have definitely made it more authentic. And the fact that they all are speaking in uh, English, to me, makes it seem less authentic because they're catering to an American audience, right? I, I feel like uh, you definitely would have had some people coming in. I mean, if it was directed by Steven Spielberg, people are going to go. and Especially after Private Ryan. like Right. <laughs> I think that's interesting. This movie, maybe with the people who are interested in getting involved, it could have been like a huge hollywood event and i think it was still promoted as such at the time uh but because you know steven spielberg had to step back creatively it wind up being not as much of like a monumental release as they as it could have been that was probably the box office like risk they had to you know balance out you know do we do we want to have a movie with less than known um Japanese actors, actresses for that matter, actually, um, and take the risk not knowing how they would perform versus what they already had and, you know, known quantity um, out of, you know, Zhang Ziyi and Michelle Yeoh and, and Li Gong, who were really established already at the time after, um, you know, those those kung fu movies in the, in the early 2000s. Um, and they went with the latter. Um, again, I don't think their acting was bad. It just, like you said, didn't didn't come off as authentic uh, mm -hmm. for those that appreciate or that are into Japanese culture. Remember the beginning? They actually spoke Japanese, and there wasn't a word of English. That's right. I actually like that. It was really cool how they did that in the beginning. Yeah, because it got awkward to the end. Because you know, when when they were speaking English to the Americans, it there was no sudden change right it's as if they were speaking english the entire time it sounded the same as when they were talking to themselves and you know there was no kind of period where they showed they had to learn english because they probably wouldn't have spoken english um yeah, in right. their 30s you know so it it made an for an awkward transition from my, from it, my view. it would have been i i could see the the chairman and mr nobu maybe having um some some knowledge of english being like businessmen uh, who are trying to get into like Western business, you know, like they would have made an effort to learn some English, but you're right. Not, not the, the geisha characters. They, especially since they come from like a smaller, uh, populated area. Like I know, what was the name of the, the town that this movie takes place mostly in? I believe it's Kyoto, which is, you know, the second or third largest Japanese city, but it's in a small, I thought it was called something else, like something like something starting with an M, but, um, yeah, you're right. That's that's something it's like we just assume. I didn't even realize we just kind of like go with it that they're just speaking English to these Americans. And because it's the, in the same way they speak to themselves, it goes kind of unnoticed unless you really think about it and it doesn't add up. I was thinking maybe because um, with the subtitle situation, I think a lot of people would have had to focus too much. And I think the fact that this movie was kind of slow, like they like to just have that balance of trying to be able to focus 
as well as keep up with how I don't know how Subway felt. It might have been less dialogue in the movie then, because uh, if yeah, if you have a lot of subtitles, that might distract from the like the cinematography and and the beautiful like landscapes they're showing. I feel like even the sets. So this is all filmed on sets and sound stages for the most part, uh, of like the 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 you know with the Japanese architecture and everything of the town. I thought that all looked really great. It was like first oh, yeah. first rate production. And uh, I liked looking at all that and, and seeing like the Japanese architecture and, 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 and stuff like that. So maybe if you had to, if you were to do it all in Japanese, I wonder if you would have had uh, much less dialogue and maybe focused more on telling the story visually uh, you know, with the characters just learning the art form and, and that way, which again would have been uh, like, I, I would have really appreciated something like that, but maybe not something that American audiences are used to. Don't you think that that probably would have worked like now, like 2021, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, where you have these great set pieces and the movie, you know, now American audiences in particular are more accustomed to things that are subtitled like Parasite, one, mm -hmm. you know, one mm -hmm. the Academy, great. right? So um, I think in 2005, it was just a very different, it doesn't seem that long ago, well, it does for me, but it doesn't seem that long ago, <laughs> but I think audiences were very different back then. Um, yeah. The Asian market and the subtitle market, you know, movies like Schindler's List, all these things, you know, they start in a different language and then it transitions pretty quickly over into English so that the audiences can actually stay more focused. Um, but yeah, I think that that would apply now. And I wonder if they redid this again and or, you know, re-engage re this project in 2021, how different it would, it would be by being more yeah, this would make a This would make a great miniseries. Oh, yeah. 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 Perhaps Nobu-san will be kind enough to explain the rules of the match. Three things matter in life. Small business and war. Understand one? You know them all. But why should I get you care? You spend your time plucking strings and dancing. I humbly back to differ. What is so more but a dance between giants? What is business but a dance between companies? I'd like to know about every kind of dance. Would the term Oscar bait be appropriate? For this? Uh, be only because a movie that came out uh, a couple years earlier and like I think I think it did end up winning Best Picture was another historical epic, Cold Mountain. And I think on paper, I think I read the synopsis to Cold Mountain, like a man... Uh, uh, you know, uh, a Confederate soldier, Jude Law, has to run back, you know, make it his way through the North to go back to the South and his epic journey. And I, was, I remember a, a couple of years ago checking it out, and I found myself once again incredibly bored by it. I was surprising. I found it surprisingly bore, boring. Was that, that was Cold Mountain, right? Yeah, Cold, Cold Mountain. Mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think it, the, the beginning and Renee Zellweger are like the the things to latch on to. But uh, I think definitely, I mean, the, this is this was made for $85 million. I think people really kind of wanted to ride that, like, oh, historical epics when, like, we're going to get the best of the best. And they did get the, like, once, I think it's important, like, John Williams dropped out of Harry Potter. He's like, I don't want to do Gobbler of Fire. I want to, I actually want to write music for this. And the score is excellent. It is. The, there's a like there's a lot of production aspects to this that I find a plus. Yeah, it's interesting that I guess the source material was something that really resonated with all these big Hollywood figures that they all really wanted to be a part of this project. And I heard it's a good book. It did yeah. very well and it came out in 97. I heard it did very well and the guy did his research. Mm -hmm. He he also outed the he made the, the the controversy that I found. He outed the geisha, like he he said her name, like she was my source, and that oh, yeah, that would be caused a, a whole like you can't do that in the geisha. Like they found out who like they broke the code. I don't want to say there's like a geisha code, but yeah, it broke the code. No, I I agree. I think there is something to be said about uh, that world being a bit secretive, and or maybe very secretive, and not being something that you would share with outsiders all of the inner workings of. So to do so, to do so is interesting for us. Like we want to know, but that's not really something that the people part of that world really want to share as much with everyone else. 
And the other thing, I feel like the fact that we kind of connected them with prostitutes was the auctioning off the virginity. I think that wasn't a regular thing for geishas, but that portion made me think, I don't know, that they were perhaps almost like prostitutes in some way. Well, that's the one element that was like sex being part of their profession of, you know, the auctioning of the virginity. Yeah, which I, I that's interesting. And I need to like look into see if that was really a thing. It, it, you know, for all I know, it could have or could not have been. But there was nothing really else about what they were doing that was sexual, right? I mean, they would, again, entertain men or maybe flirt with men to some degree. But for the most part, their craft was focused on artistry. So you have that one element that's a major plot point in the movie who, by the way, I, she, the winner of that auction winds up being Dr. Crab, right? Which like the key master from the matrix movies. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that was, yeah, yeah. yeah the key maker. But that, but yeah, I, I was like, where have I seen this guy before? Between that was the, the couple of names in this movie that made me laugh. Dr. Crab and pumpkin, because they're just so not Japanese names. I think they explain that Dr. Crab is like a nickname or something, but the whole time, Anytime he's on screen, I just kept saying, oh, look, at Dr. Crab. Dr. Crab on your virginity. It's just like a weird sort of name to have. I think they just translate it into English funny. If they went with yep. the Japanese yep. names, it would probably <laughs> sound a bit more authentic. Yeah, it sounds like Dr. Like gives you the crabs or something. And then Pumpkin, that is such like an American nickname. Again, I don't know if maybe there's like a Japanese. I'm sure like in any culture there are pet names that you give people. Uh, but pumpkin, that is such to me like a southern sort of thing, like pumpkin, like where are you? And then to have this character have that name when everyone else is very authentic sounding Japanese names also kind of stuck out. Yeah, that and was, that's the one Jap the one Japanese character is named after a Western squash, yeah. right? And <laughs> I don't even know if pumpkins made it to Japan by that time. But um, I, again, I imagine there was a, a Japanese word for it that yeah. that made more sense. Yeah, I'd like that's the thing. It's a little unclear at times what is supposed to be like a representation in English of something Japanese and it's just being like the equivalent or what is just actually something that's just Japanese and you have to take it for what it is. Um and then you know I can hear the screenwriter going yeah. like, "All right, the, we don't know. I I'm just going to give her a pumpkin. Like that's going to be the name." Like too lazy to think of Japanese pet names and just or nothing that really he liked and just settled on an American one. Uh, you know, the character I actually was most interested in watching this was the uh, Hatsumomo character, so the older geisha who's, I guess, more or less sort of the villain of the movie in a way. But even though she's like, I feel like she could be seen as this one-dimensional mean character, I actually found her very compelling because I feel like that actress brings a sense of pain, like an inner pain that the character has, and it made the character work. It was... Are we talking about Gong Li? Gong Li. Yeah. 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 Gong. Even her look, her hair, it, it, she really exemplified that kind of like pained mm -hmm. kind of bitchiness that I, you know, you can relate to a bit. He, she, I feel like the whole movie, she kind of is exemplifying a sort of like, you know, she has a sort of rebellious spirit to her, but more or less she has surrendered to this world of being a geisha that she does not really want to be a part of. So the whole time she has this resentment towards almost everybody, which I thought was performed in a very believable way i believe that um we know when her exit when she was burning down the house i actually believe that i i and how she just walks away the walking away is very interesting to me and compelling yeah yeah i think she was really well developed too you know gong li li gong whichever way you want to go with it um she was like i said a very established you know actress in in china at the time so um she really lent a lot of emotion and she was one of the few that I, you could see in the cast that um, that added some depth to their character. Mm -hmm. you know, Japanese movies, if you watch them, especially if they're romantic, there's any kind of romance or any kind of drama, um, it's usually very melodramatic, right? You know, they're very sudden, very, you know, massive movements and dramatic faces, you know, kabuki faces. Mm -hmm. um, you don't see that much in many of the characters. Again, you know, Zhang Ziyi, who was in a movie a couple, I think it was the same year, uh, called 2046 by Wong Kar Wai. You know, she seems like a completely different character um, from when I saw her in 2046 to Memoirs of a Geisha, where she's mm. very, like, toned down and subtle. But Li Gong, you know, I thought she uh, she added a lot of emotion to, you know, being the struggling, 
the struggle villain. I guess she is a villain, like Shogun you said. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah I kind of really... wanted. I kind of wanted more. I like she was great, but I think uh, like I think this movie did a lot of really good setup in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I was like very invested, and you know she's hooking up with a man, and he's like finding her like this is. This is sin, basically. Um, but he says something about then... he says something about like, oh, I hate having to sneak around. And I guess as a geisha, she can't really have a relationship with a man because she has to keep her purity, and that's not really the role of a geisha to have like a love interest. But, but once uh, uh, Jiang Zi grew up and started really applying herself as a geisha, I feel like everyone kind of fell into their like she became the ugly stepsister trope. Mm. And I kind of wanted more, um, personally. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then she just disappears, right? Like, yeah, I, I like, I, I'm like, I'm like, that's it? No, no, I, I don't want her like her comeuppance in that way. But I wanted a closed arc as opposed to just like she's exiled. Well, she's cast out for nearly burning the house down, which I guess is like a big metaphor for her destroying the like metaphorical house, right? Like the house of like you know the, that mother. Uh, and uh, she's she's cast down and it's ambiguous what happens to her. So uh, I, yeah, I, I find it interesting because then there's also the ambiguity of what happens to the sister character, right? She's un she's unable to meet up with her sister when they plan to, and she never heard from her sister again. So there's like, I buy like for the longest time, you know, you, there was no way of knowing what happened to certain people if you just were weren't able to like like keep touch with them, and I feel like that added. I kind of like the ambiguity of it because I feel like that adds more to the tragedy of it. You know, people come and go and you might not know whatever happened to them, especially in uncertain times. And uh, you know, for her to walk out like that, you can even see for the Hatsumono character, when she, the last shot of her, I think, is when she looks the most vulnerable because she it's like she's given everything to this this house and to this profession and she's still miserable and now she has nothing. So I find that she that was like maybe I had to like do my own work and invest more than the movie's giving me. But I ultimately did find that effective as a tragic character. Yeah. And she, but like you I think you hinted at earlier is that she could never really conform to the requirements of being a geisha, which is what, um, you know, in the end is what leads to her, her fall. Right. You she's know, never she, successful because she has that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Her exile. And also, I feel like Pumpkin essentially did learn from her. She became her because she betrayed, you know, betrayed Sayori. Well, yeah. That's the thing. That was probably the most melodramatic part of the movie towards the end when, um, yeah, she tried to get, she tries to get uh, Pumpkin to, like, go along with this scheme to so she can, like, turn off Nobu. Nobu catches her with the colonel, but instead, Pumpkin brings the chairman, knowing what she's doing to, like, that was a very soap opera-ish moment, right? Like, Oh, you brought the wrong guy and you betrayed me and you know, all these things. It was like that was very melodramatic. And so I can see something like that being very soap opera ish. But it shows like who are whose mentors, right? Because Hatsumomo was Pumpkin's mm -hmm. mentor yeah. and you know, Mama san was our uh no Mam uh Mamea. Mamea. Mamea was uh uh Michelle Yeoh's character was Mameha was you know, the mentor for Sayuri. Uh, for Sayuri, so you see the complete dichotomy there, like mm -hmm. how they're raised. One, look out for yourself, and you know, mm -hmm. personal revenge, and one, you know, look for the greater society in your in your business. Your right, that was like the payoff of Pumpkin, you know, spending all that time with the cruel Hatsumomo as her mentor. But uh, I guess maybe it was in the direction of it, and yeah, the reveal of the chairman looking in and being shocked and horrified that. That, that felt like the most of like a shocking soap opera moment where maybe like, you know, in a TV show, you hear like an organ, like dun, dun, dun. And then, you know, how could you betray me? <sighs> that kind of thing. You know, a character that I actually enjoyed um, was, uh, was Okasan, the mother, you know, the mama-san, the lady with the long cigarette where the cigarette pointed upwards. Yeah. What a classy way to smoke that cigarette. I want a pipe <laughs> like that. I don't smoke cigarettes, but I might take it up now. Yeah, a cigarette pipe, I guess you would call it, or a pipe cigarette. Kind of beautiful. Yeah, um, like... I don't know. I like. I like. She was probably one of the more authentic of all the characters. Um, you know, she was strict but but fair. 
um, really all about the success of the business. Um, and it was played very well, I think, by that. I, I don't even know who that actress is. Well, she also conveyed the other concept of being a geisha, which is the whole thing of having a debt when you're taken in as a geisha because she pays basically she buys these women these as girls and that's like the start of their debt what they were paid for and then all the money has to be invested in them to go to school and be trained and for their clothing and all these things and that's like the debts that they have to pay back through their work which is also very interesting because they're basically like at that point like indentured servants and uh, that's actually something we learned too. So Eric and I, after watching this, we were inspired to learn more about geishas, right? Like what's like the real thing. So we started watching this documentary that Amazon had suggested after we finished watching this movie, as Amazon is wont to do. And it, it was like a 2005 documentary that probably was made in response to this movie. And that was like one of the first things that were going on is like the debts. You know, these geishas are working back to repay the money that's been invested to them. And that's how these geisha houses make money. Speaking of the history, geishas used to be men. They used to be like jesters, remember? That's right. There was a period in the early um, you know, feudal Japan where it was both. They had men and women, but there were male geishas. It was not mm. uncommon. That's, all, that's like you mentioned uh, kabuki before. I uh, remember learning in my theater history class in college that the interesting history behind like kabuki, for example, was that it was initially something performed with young women, but I guess that kind of lent itself to a situation where there was a lot of prostitution with these like young women actresses and the country banned young women from being in these kabuki shows to prevent that from happening. So then young men were acting in these shows, but then the young men were taking part in the prostitution. So then young men were banned from kabuki theater. And then that's why traditionally now for many centuries, kabuki theater actors are older men the least likely people to be prostitutes i suppose essentially yeah yeah but it's like but it's interesting like you know the geisha art form the kabuki art form i mean these are still held in very high regard in japanese society i mean they're like basically their national heritage and even if the whole geisha um economy is nothing like it was before world war ii it is still something that they treasure to some degree it's another thing. I, I so I studied kabuki as well in World of Dance in college, um, and we performed kabuki as well. And that's that. It was very interesting because it's really a storytelling through like movement, and and I feel like if they portrayed that more in the movie instead of all this dialogue, they actually showed the artistry of movement and telling the story that way. I think it would have been kind of successful. Yeah, like focused more. There were some what I appreciated about the movie, and I still like the movie, right? I don't dislike the movie. Um, but it's how they touched on all these different parts of Japanese society or Japanese culture. Uh, yes, they touch on, you know, a surface area, and the surface value of what it's like to be a geisha. But they remember there's a portion of the movie where they go to the sumo wrestling match, mm-hmm. you know, where they kind of explain like what sumo is. It's not just two men, just two big men pushing each other around. That there's an art to it as well. There's a science to it as well. How you win, how the smaller person can win. And that's probably the also a bit of the ring and the salt. Yeah, yeah. But also the, I think there was a bit of foreshadowing there how, you know, the smaller sumo wrestler could beat the larger sumo wrestler. Mm-hmm. So it's like Sayuri versus Hatsumomo by just using the right technique. So, I mean, I, I did like how they, they walked through a little bit of that. You know, I think they did some of the tea making. Um, I think it was really good to, to kind of, expose that to to the audience the western audiences a bit more than it had been at the time yeah some of these art forms that are like something like calligraphy is something that's more considered an art form in like asian cultures and like in western cultures like you know obviously we're taught in school like you know proper handwriting and such but it's not really considered to be as in the same tier of an art form as say like music or you know like dance something like that that's of you know, um, yeah, very sophisticated um, artistry. Uh, and then, yeah, something like pouring the tea. There's a whole, um, you know, performance to everything they do. Even the converse, there's an art of conversation. 
that they have. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something to be said about that. And even the training, like the pain they put themselves through, how she has to sleep uncomfortably to learn the proper physicalities and things like that. So that was all interesting. And so I would say this movie shouldn't be considered like a full education on the art form of geisha, but maybe as an introductory to people who don't really know. And again, you can then, if you're interested in learning more, you can. And it's, you know, take it for what it is. It is for the most part, you know, uh, focusing more on the story and being dramatic and falling into some cliches at times. Uh, but you can definitely see it as also a gateway into um you know learning about a culture that if you haven't really if you don't really know much about it to begin with a gateway not like a total you know accurate representation yeah like a glimpse i think keith hit the nail on the head there by saying you could expand on this story a lot more in a miniseries and give people a better perspective if it was several you know several hour long or whatever hour and a half long um um episodes because you could develop everyone better and right there's it's hard, it's hard to pack all of that in a in a two-ish hour. They movie. got the details right. They like I think a miniseries, and I hope you're listening, Netflix or HBO Max or whoever owns Memoirs <laughs> Overgate. Uh, but uh, yeah, I you you would get the emotional attachment right too, or at least like the a real a real chance to grow these characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Because like like anything else, critics are always going to be critical of movies that don't flesh out the characters as much as they would like. You know, the critics always look for the more human elements of movies. And not to say this movie doesn't have a human element to it. I think it does. But, yeah, they always want more from that. And that's why I'm seeing the divide, why critics are very much more negative on this than audiences, is because they see a lot of this as being, like, surface-level storytelling, whereas audiences, I think, again, are being intrigued by a culture that I was familiar with and also uh, hating a lot of familiar beats and emotions that maybe they get from other movies in terms of like a character growing and succeeding and hardship. So, you know, maybe some of that is our cliched things you see, but they will, these are things that will always resonate with, with audiences and maybe critics just see them one too many times, but you know, I don't think you've ever really seen them in American movies like this, in this kind of setting with these kinds of people. So I think critics maybe should give this a little more credit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the romanticizing of this really did connect with Americans well. I think that's the thing that made audience really into it. Yeah, romanticizing. That's like the perfect word for it. Um, because maybe it was like more, you know, as much as you see the struggle of of this character in real life is probably even like 10 times more harsh. And, and, you know, people suffered way more trying to climb up the ranks and what life was like back then. So you're right. Romantic- you are rooting for her. Yeah, they were. You are, but uh, I wonder if the rating had anything to do with it. If you could keep it that way as a PG thirteen, or how much further, or how you know how much more you could have expanded on it as a, as a rated R movie. But um, I'm sure those those restrictions um, kind of again restricted the the story developing. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, this is a story. It's it's an American film. Like, you know, with Asian actors, but for the most part, it is catering to an American audience told through an American studio. Well, you know, and so that that can, you know, dilute that authenticity we're looking for. And that's ultimately probably like my biggest problem. But, you know, the idea of this movie itself, I don't have an issue with, but that seems to be something that the critics have an issue with. Um, and I believe I, I agree with you about the whole. This is a gateway to 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 really showing off the Eastern culture and everything. Because um, people, I didn't know about geishas until this movie came out. Like geishas were actually geishas were even in like hip hop songs. I think they're like something like like a geisha, and like yeah. that's still two yeah. thousand. But anyways, like I just feel that um, geishas were connected to beauty. Like I remember um, we would call like a beautiful Asian woman or Japanese woman a geisha. I don't know why. That's what uh, I guess. In those songs that came out or like americans would kind of title beautiful asian women um i remember even my fraternity brother like said i look like a geisha in a photo because i was photoshopped and it was my headshot with like a salmon shirt and a floral <laughs> bow tie so you know it was like it's it's seen as like japanese beauty right uh, more like in american culture a more vague term used more loosely 
which is the opposite of what it is. It's like a very specific kind of role with a very specific set of high standards for what qualifies as a geisha. But again, they hint on that in the movie after the after World War II, you know, that standard was diluted and you know, the art form, you know, declined in numbers and maybe like declined in in standards. Uh, although there is uh, from what I understand some effort to preserve you know, that, that high standards, you know, just in much smaller numbers. I wish you could have told me long ago. What could I do? I owe Nobu my life. And so, when I saw he had a chance at happiness with you, I stood silent. But, but I cannot any longer. I hope it is not too late. I guess at the end of the day, it sounds like we're we're in the process of getting to a conclusion here. <laughs> getting there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, what did I enjoy the movie? Yes, I definitely enjoyed the movie. Um, uh, went out to the theater. What I bought bought the DVD, um, but then you look at it. It took me 17 years to watch it again. Um, 16, 17 years to watch it for a third time. Um, I think the story does a really good job, like I said, of, or at least the movie does a very good job telling the story, right, in a very linear fashion, uh, portraying it very beautifully. You know, if I would best describe it, it would be a, an Eastern story um, with, like you said, with an Asian cast seen through a western lens and with a western denouement because if it was really asian if it was really japanese the ending would be extremely different um i think when after um the betrayal of pumpkin sayuri wouldn't have thrown the handkerchief she probably would have jumped off the cliff and i think um what's his name the chairman would realize that and say, oh my God, why didn't I tell her before? And he too would have committed suicide. That would have been an Asian end to mm. this kind oh, of yeah. story. Like dramatic Asian. Um, it's very more tragic. Yeah, right. It would be a lot more tragic and maybe resound more with, with Eastern audiences. Note to self. <laughs> Chairman would be like, note to self. Don't say something next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And <laughs> in a Japanese movie, he probably would have killed himself. Um, so... That's what really I always I've been thinking about that since I first watched the movie. Like, oh, the ending is a little western. It's fairy tale ending. They're happy yeah, yeah. ever after. But in a real Japanese movie, that would not have happened, and they would have probably both That's so dead. interesting. Yeah, exactly. Again, like the the romanticization of it, of it all. Um, that probably is like the the most um, unauthentic thing about it. So uh, on that note, though. I think we can then get into like our, our final scores. So, you know, Gina, I kind of take that as your final take on this movie. Um, so what would your like percentage score be like, you know, uh, on, you know, if we're going back to like, you know, if you, like if you're a teacher grading this movie on a scale of zero to a hundred, uh, what would your score be? That's a tough one. Cause like I said, I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed watching it the second time um, or the third time, which was very recently. Right. Um, because of the storytelling, because of the amount of effort that was put into uh, giving us all a glimpse of what that really secretive life uh, looked like um, and giving us interesting characters, which maybe weren't super developed, but were still interesting enough to, to watch the whole movie, right? Um, I'd probably give it somewhere between a 65 and a 70, maybe mm -hmm. 70, just because... Um, the acting was pretty solid, in my opinion. It wasn't amazing, but it was pretty solid. Uh, it was a good cast. Uh, but again, the, the distractions were the Chinese cast, the, um, I guess, I wouldn't say the lack of, but uh, maybe the lack of respect towards Japanese culture, or the lack of authenticity, um, and, and you know, the non-Eastern storyline ending are the few things that bothered me the most. But yeah, 65 to 70. 70. Okay. Let's say 70. Be decisive. Okay, yeah, there you go. Um, all right, so 70. And then what about Eric? Um, what, what are your final thoughts and your score? So this movie was actually, back in the day when it came out, I had MySpace. It was listed under one of my favorite movies on MySpace. Um, that's the thing. Like, I felt like this fulfilled my Asian pride obsession. I'm like, oh, my gosh, maybe about Japanese culture and about geisha. It's so cool. So 
I watched it. I got into it, the whole romanticism, being young, I was into that whole storyline, making it dramatic, soap opery. Um, now, watching it now, I do agree, actually, the authenticity. I would like to see more of that. And also with um, the Japanese actors, like, I feel like I wish there were more Japanese actors in this. Um, and the controversy, that's obviously an issue. But the thing is, um, I did like this movie, and I still find it beautiful. I, like her running through that little walkway. I thought that's so beautiful seeing a little girl doing that and then even the seeing the mountains in the background, the roofing, it just, it really gets you excited about Japan. Like I remember uh, we even watched um, some movies together such as, um, what's that movie again? Lost in Translation? Lost in Translation. Great and just movie. seeing that movie, great, great movie. movie, not divided, unfortunately, but like that movie is, um, is great because it really shows a culture that's more modern and I don't know, like it, just having these little little bits and pieces of Japanese culture gets us excited. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess with the rating wise, I would give this a 78. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little higher okay. than I thought I would give it. But you know, I, I just I'm going back to watching the past and comparing to it now. And this is my average of it. Okay. So not as enthusiastic, but still pretty positive. Uh, you know what? With Lost in Translation, it could be a good double feature, right? Because you get like one movie that's like about um, a, a previous time period in Japan and then another movie that's more modern, uh, although both are told through Western lenses. But And this movie's two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's, tough to do, it's tough to do a double feature when one movie is over two and a half hours. But um, still, like maybe they could be companion pieces or something. I don't know. Yeah, watch if you haven't yet. I don't know how you'd put them on, how you'd recommend it, but you know those old Akira Kurosawa movies are great insights in Japan. You know mm. they're, but very Japanese in that they're very violent, they're very tragic, and very, you know, <laughs> very gory. Um, but Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, Ron. Uh, Akira is my, one of my favorites. The the anime Akira. No Akira, uh, Akira. Uh, the one where the Japanese man gets, uh, he gets told he has cancer. It's, I had to watch it for a class and I found it like, as you said, very enthralling and painful, <laughs> but it was, it was such a great drama. And like, I, Akira Kurosawa is one of the, one of the better directors out there. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the whole drama aspect, that's the thing. Like, I felt like this movie was predictable. Like mm -hmm. I knew that Mamaya was actually like. Um, it was all in cahoots with um, the chairman. It was kind of obvious with that because he would yeah. just show up randomly. Like, come on. Yeah, it definitely the story could be predictable at times, which is another thing critics aren't a fan of. But it's like a comforting thing for American audiences when they can stick to a more familiar storyline. So there you have it. Another another thing critics are not a fan of, but audiences enjoy. But Keith, um, you know, it sounds like. You know, you're about to give us our, your score. So, what do you think? I there's a lot of things that I do appreciate about this movie. Even aside from production, this conversation, like I think we hit a lot of points in this conversation that make me even appreciate. It. I appreciate that I saw it as my first time. I I do think it fits into those like Oscar type movies that I I saw once and really don't need to see again except on if i'm doing a podcast about divided movies uh there were, this movie is two and a half hours and there were times i remember pausing several times and going like oh my god there's an hour left like it i found it definitely lagged a few times for me and it i wanted to i wanted to care a lot more about these characters journeys aside from the predictability of it i'm gonna give it a 52 mm -hmm. it is watchable but there's something that's preventing it from being and the more research i, d I did on it there's something that's preventing it from being like one of the best movies yeah okay now i i dig that uh which you know that's critical but it's still not as low as the critical score when i right isn't it like 30 something percent with the critics like really too low for this, this is the same average between like that this and the butterfly effect it's like 48 yeah difference. we've like, talked <laughs> about some really bad movies that have similar critical scores which seems kind of wrong to me um 
Yes. Yeah, so with my score, uh, I did enjoy this more than I thought I would. And I agree, Keith, that it does tend to lag at times. Like there are there are scenes that I really enjoy. Like I like the sumo scene when she is actually able to get on um, Mr. Nobu's good side. And he's kind of like a tough cookie to crack, but she's able to to win him over. Things like that. Uh, where the character is growing. But then other scenes that generally work with me is like when they go to, what is it, the General's Cherry Blossom event. That seemed to be a scene that I didn't really care for or really add much. And it was a long sequence. It was like a good 10, 15-minute sequence, things like that. So the it's two and a half hours. I don't think it needed to be, especially when not all of it is growing. You think in two and a half hours you could develop these characters, and they don't as well as it could have. Uh, but I did ultimately enjoy it. And so I would give this like, I'd give this like a 72. So it, you know, Keith will do the, the math there. What's our average score? I once again, find it appropriate, a 68, 68. That sounds about I, right. Uh, that sounds about right for me. Yeah. Me Watchable, too. but watch it again in a decade. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And those movies do exist. Like Absolutely. I can see what you mean, too, about it being like a very Oscar-bait kind of movie or a movie made for Oscar season. And Historical epics, man. Like That was, I, that was popular at the time, the 2000s. You had a lot of period pieces that were epic. this year, though? It, oh, this was, uh, this was um, Lord of the Rings all won, the Return, Return of the Kin won that year, didn't they? Uh, that was a couple years earlier, I believe, 2003. So if this was 2005, I think actually, was that the year Million Dollar Baby was like the best movie of the year? There were good movies that year. There was like Syriana. King Kong came was... out. Yeah, like, Kong. it came out around the same time King Kong came out. I think uh, it did kind of hurt it in the box office. Yeah, yeah. Or was it? That was yeah. No, the the last Star Wars. Movie yeah, it was Million Dollar Baby. Yeah, yeah, that was two thousand five. But uh, you know, yeah. I would say going back to our point about how this could be a gateway movie into Japanese culture, one is not familiar. And then, if you really want authentic Japanese movies or Japanese movies that are authentic about Japanese culture, watch Japanese cinema and some of the titles that that Gene mentioned, and then you go straight to the source, basically then you won't have it through a diluted lens or a Western lens. You'd have it being, you know, Japanese culture told by Japanese people, which is the best way to experience that kind of storytelling in an authentic way. So, you know, start, start here and then, or you can just dive head first into it as well. If you want to, maybe you don't have to go through a movie like this first, just go right into that, you know, into that, um, you know, Japanese film industry. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot to start with. So, but uh, for this movie, Memoirs of a Geisha, uh, I will decree that we are officially siding with the audience. So, contra- yeah. controversies aside, we, we did enjoy it, but we did make note of them. So, asterisks. Uh, Side with audiences, <laughs> but asterisks about, you know, the... I don't know, I don't know how to add that sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find something that works. Um, you know, but... Uh, great discussion guys uh you know yes thank you uh eric gene thanks for joining us for this episode i think this was a great discussion on this movie and we hit all the points that we needed to yeah thanks for inviting me yeah thanks for joining jane this is great for you to visit and to our podcast yeah yeah exactly next time you're in town uh you know maybe we'll do another one um, their digital hit me up anytime oh that's true we always do we do these remotely too so you know we'll let you know if there's another movie that uh, you know, we could be, we could have a good discussion with you about. Uh, but thanks everyone for listening as always, and join us again for another divided film. Mm-hmm.